Welcome, dear listeners, to the History of Knickknacks podcast with Rob and Jaren. And today, a very special guest, because sometimes we have one special guest. We've also had, like, I don't know, all of our guests have been special, but and not that anyone is more special than the other. They're all equally great and wonderful in their own special <laughs> ways, and I love all of them. But today we are joined uh, with, by, yeah, by, not with, um, by, no, shoot, is it with, by? We're, today we're joined <laughs> by, today Luke of Notes of the Silver Screen joins us on this very spooky episode. I'm excited to be here. It's going to be a good time. Yes. Yeah, All is. right. He said it's going to be good. So listener, you know, you're in for a treat. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess all cards on the table, we're talking about the history of horror movies and like the genre of horror. So if you don't like spooky episodes, give this a listen and then maybe you'll get into spooky episodes because they're kind of cool, I guess. Yeah. I mean, Honestly, it's not like we're it's not like it's a film. You're not going to watch somebody get murdered or some crazy dramatic scene. <laughs> it could be like The Ring but for podcasts. You just listen and it's that like <laughs> eerie sound. Yeah. <laughs> You'll die in 7 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um yeah, so be warned um but also if anybody with any legal training is listening that is totally a fair warning <laughs> and listen at your own risk <laughs> it's probably a good way to start it yeah because i could keep going on and just rambling but I, i'll do that later too <laughs> but to be specific it is about um films because it's not about books books have been around like horror books have been around for a pretty good while but this is specific to the filming industry. Just to be clear. I mean, that's that's what Rob says, so that's what we're rolling with. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like to have a film horror um, subject to talk about, I think we do have to take it back to, like, the origins of horror because, like, why not? Why not get a little history in? Not, like, a lot of history, but, like, a little bit of history. For sure. Because with with regards to that, like every culture we know has their Bigfoots, their chupacabras, all these different like creatures and things that will snatch you out of this out of the night, you know, trying to get you and scare kids from doing, I don't know, erroneous actions of some sort. That was the type of terror that was told through story and through books and different things like that for whatever reason, maybe to control population. I don't I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like, we have, I guess thinking about it now, I think about, like, the Brothers Grimm and the fairy tales that they came up with. Or if you watch the movie, the Brothers Grimm, the stories they fabricated. I guess those are still the stories they fabricated. Yeah. So it's still all the same. Like, those are kind of gruesome tales. Yeah. And then scary stuff. But then we also get to, like, the, or continuing with that vein of literature, we have Bram Stoker. Bram, is it okay? Is it Bram or is it Bram? Bram Stoker. Dude, I don't know. Bram Stoker. Uh, Bram Stoker. I don't know. I'm gonna roll. You just roll with one. Just say it We're really rolling, confident. Okay. <laughs> like we have Bram Stoker's Dracula, 
We have Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Edgar Allan Poe. I don't know if you guys read a lot of Edgar Allan Poe, but my eighth grade teacher was like big fan, big, big fan. And so we read a lot of Edgar Allan Poe poems and we read like a, a fictional book about some kids that encountered Edgar Allan Poe and like mm. helped him write something or whatever what? or solve some mystery. I don't remember. That's weird. It's just... It's just the thing we uh, we did. I remember that book, and I was like, yeah, Edgar Allan Poe's so cool. The Telltale Heart, The Raven, one of the other ones. Those are all the ones I remember off the top of my head. I didn't do a lot of reading in high school. Wasn't a fan. So, Or middle school, I guess, is eighth grade. But either way, wasn't a fan of reading. <laughs> Most of my reading has been in my adult life. Because people can grow and change. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. I have. Thank you for noticing. I appreciate that. I mean, not maybe you can see it if I like edit the films, but Rob's hair looks a lot better than it did probably before. I don't know. <laughs> I think you've always had like solid hair though, so never mind. We'll, we'll cut that. We'll, I'll cut that. No, out it's post. okay. It's okay. It's fine. <laughs> I'm not insulted. Uh, um. Yeah. So Luke with your podcast you guys you and your brother logan talk a lot about movies and different aspects of movies and that's probably like super reader's digest version of your podcast <laughs> but did you want to like take us into the realm of horror and film and like that kind of stuff oh man i i guess i can sure try okay sick um it's kind of that question that you were saying like where do you even begin I like in your notes and in the light reading I was doing, I feel like everybody talks about the birth of the imagery of horror films. Like, obviously, George Millier, he's like the first, I guess, real artist in the genre of motion picture when you're talking about the historical context for film. Because before that, you know, you have the. Um, the Great Train Robbery or whatever it is, where it's more of uh, the novelty of motion pictures where they're just filming something in real life. And then the reason you go to see it is because you've never seen a video recording played back. <laughs> but then Melier, he was an illusionist by trade. You know, he's a, ma he's a magician, he's a showman. And I think he's the first person who really saw the film as a tool and at least had an inkling of what it was capable of and so i think in your notes and in wikipedia and some of the summaries of the horror genre and film i've seen they say it all starts with george melier and yeah he has these elements of gothic horror you know he has skeletons and the devil or ghouls or these demonic figures but i think melier's work is like it's still in that era when the films were all about the spectacle. Right. Where you're watching it because he's making these devils appear out of thin air and not because they're devils. I think it was just mm. a recognizable figure, recognizable iconography that he used to kind of build out his show. Yeah, and yeah. bring to life a little. But I don't, I don't really think that that's horror because 
a horror film is supposed to scare you and Nelly is all about amusing you and they're two very different things yeah he was like the original scary movie guy (laughs) the bad the the, bad scary movies yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) um i just think that's kind of fascinating how like at in the beginning of film or film history i guess how people are like oh my goodness they're playing this show like we gotta go see it. i've never seen i don't know a film of bones or a film of like a train or something or literally like anything or just a film yeah <laughs> and now we're like oh shucks gee i don't know i could go see like james bond or whatever or i could like stay home and like binge the office or like just watch whatever i want yeah really and i feel like now at least for me i'm like oh do I really want to go to a theater? I mean, sure, we have, like, this whole pandemic, right? But I'm also, like, do I really want to leave my house? And I feel like something's got to be really good or there's got to be a lot of hype for me to put on some pants and leave the house. I think that's a point, though, as to why George Millier was considered a horror, the start of horror, just because, yeah, his stuff was more entertaining and just, like, amusement, but it was depictions of quote scary things like the evil devil and the skeleton come to life so it got people out of their houses i think is like the main point because like you said luke it was it was uh he was one of the first to see what this could become and how it could captivate everyone yeah everyone (laughs) yeah and i guess what i'm saying is that like i guess my millier films are well, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Never mind. No, I, I see what you're saying. You're you're just saying that then, like, this is the stuff that got you out of the house. Yeah. And maybe I'm just desensitized to things now or spoiled. And so I'm like, ah, uh, there has to be, like, a great spectacle to get me out of the house. Yeah. And then, like, I say that and then I still watched Dune from my couch instead of seeing it in IMAX like I should have. <laughs> I, I still debate you on that one because didn't like the first 20 minutes but i understand i'll try to get past that and make it okay so i don't know how much of a tangent we want to go on so early but i think the i think it's interesting that you bring up how we relate to film because you know we're talking about the first films ever produced ever projected onto screens and the draw that those had and then you talk about streaming right it's like do i really want to go to a a location where they'll project a movie for me or do i want to watch one of the 50 new movies that came out on streaming this week (laughs) yeah right and just the cinematic landscape and the industry has changed so much um but i don't know i kind of was wondering what you what you think about the future of theaters do you think that the theatrical experience is going to adapt to the changing circumstances or is it going to go away or will it continue to just kind of hang in there and fight tooth and nail with streaming i i don't know how it could honestly yeah (laughs) like there's just no way that like humans love comfort we love ease how the heck is a movie theater going to compete with the ease of streaming sitting on your butt at home comfy in your pjs whatever (laughs) 
Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know how they'll compete. I think, I think, yeah, the merits of streaming, um, like, and the accessibility to so much content is great, but as much as I, I don't know, as much as the past year has turned me off to movie theaters, like, I still found myself going to theaters to see movies I really wanted to see. I feel like there's something, um, and maybe I'm just, like, a romantic, or just trying to romanticize everything, but I feel like there's... (laughs) Um, something about seeing a movie like the way the director wanted it to be seen like it's nice to watch something on in 4k at home and surround sound or watch something on like your phone and like those are all convenient things but I think the experience of seeing a film in the theaters is something that is I I don't I hope it, it doesn't get I hope it doesn't go away and I feel like we go back for what the late 1800s till now and like we're still seeing movies in theaters like we're still like we talk about oh well like that's streaming's gonna kill it just like it killed music or whatever but then we're like at least for me like i'm still drawn back to the theaters for certain Hmm. things just not the popcorn i don't really care for movie theater (laughs) popcorn yeah i'll throw that out there or any of the pricing (laughs) yeah but I feel like there's something special about seeing a movie in a theater. Maybe not surrounded by a bunch of people. Like, I can do without that. That's fine. <laughs> but, yeah, like, I don't know. Just seeing something on that big of a screen and, like, being engrossed by it I think is really cool. And I hope that's something that we hold on to because, like, novelty's nice, but I think as humans we're always looking for connection and i think that those movie theaters and like the movie theater experience helps us connect better to the movies than they would like Hmm. through streaming or otherwise i think that's my my wrap up of my big long rant right there i like it yeah that's cool i think i think that's kind of the point i'm coming to because until recently i would watch most of my I guess I still do watch the majority, but I'd watch like pretty much everything, you know, just on a laptop or on a TV at home. And just recently I started going to the theater more and I don't know what it is because it really isn't the people because honestly, in some, some people are annoying in the theater. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> distracting, but there is something, and I think it more has to do with, I guess the ritual of going to the theater because it's, we're so interconnected with our devices and we're always on screens. And, you know, if, if I'm watching something, even if it's, it has to be like really, really good. It has to be like one of the best films I've seen for a couple of months for me to <laughs> just watch the film. You know, if I'm on my mm-hmm. laptop, I'll pop open another tab and yeah. leave Netflix <laughs> playing in the background as I go Google something or text somebody or do anything else but when i when you go to the theater it's more like okay i'm gonna set aside you know two and a half hours to watch dune and that's the only thing i'm going to be doing and so i think it it's the mindset you get into and then just being able to give your undivided attention to you know the art that you're consuming it's it's a different experience than oh well i'll just put on whatever netflix released this month because it's it's there yeah. And I don't have to watch it to like consume it. 
That is so funny because I am not that way. When I when we stream something, my wife and I, I tell her, you don't ask me questions. You just watch the show. You don't. If you need to get up and go to the bathroom, we can pause it. That's fine. Oh wow! But we watch the show. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's funny because I I don't know. Like for me personally, I brought that that mindset at least home. And I know not everyone can, yeah. but maybe the movie theater, that's like their draw is this undivided attention. Yeah. And I think like watching movies with that kind of um, focus, I think goes a long ways between bridging the gap between like a theater experience and then streaming or whatever. Um, like it's still like that same thing, like you're, you're present, Rob, for the movie. And I think that's really cool. And maybe, maybe I should do that. <laughs> It's fun to be present. I enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I guess with that tangent, <laughs> I should probably get a little bit back. <laughs> wait, wait. No, I think I, I want to at least go on record saying that I will go see Dune the way it was supposed to be seen. I'm going to commit to that. Well, the director will be happy for your patronage. If he listens to this podcast, <laughs> then that's cool. If he makes it 20 minutes into the podcast, like <laughs> yeah. Rob made it 20 minutes into his movie hey wow i mean technically (laughs) (laughs) maybe we'll have like some better content later on i don't know but um (laughs) sorry i'm good to move on so like we said george millier can be credited not everyone does with the first uh depictions of horror on screen um and some of the best known earlier supernatural works are a two and a half minute short film incredibly short and it's I, like the tiktok of films yeah really though like that's where it all started <laughs> we're going back to that format hey man life not, is a circle not. just repeats goes circle around or wheels around. rob what is it <laughs> circles or wheels come on sorry you're right <laughs> <laughs> um so the name of that film i'm gonna butcher it but it's Le manor du diable and in English, that is the haunted castle or the house of the devil. So this is the like official one that was credited to being the first horror horror film, and that was by George Millier, correct? Um, that was my understanding yes. of what I read. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. So, in just to give a brief summary of it, the whole concept of it was obviously it was a haunted castle. So a mischievous, devilish person appears inside a medieval castle where he harasses the visitors. Um, and another popular one that can't like obviously he can't harass them too much because it's two and a half minutes long. So it's a really short. Film. <laughs> um, but another one that he's known for is La Caverne Maudite which translates literally into English as The Accursed Cave. Uh, the film is also known, or is known though in English, or the actual title is The Cave of the Demons. And it tells of a story of a man stumbling over a cave that popu- that was populated by spirits and skeletons of people who had died there. So, eerie ideas. <laughs> I don't know if the actual filming... <laughs> was eerie in my perspective. I think what would be cool about film back in the 1890s or like the very beginning is you could go to these castles and film something and it was cool. Like you didn't have to jump through all the hoops you have to jump through now to film on locations. 
Um, so it was basically not that they've free, actually like filmed it. Free locations. Yeah, like, like you could wander into a castle and say, I'm going to shoot a spooky movie here. And then have people a couple hundred years later say, <laughs> it's a joke, spooky movie. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think, again, shout out to Wikipedia um, for their big long synopsis on the horror genre film genre but like there's a lot of really cool stuff like we have japan creating like the spook and resurrection of a corpse we have films coming out of spain like europe area we get i mean we get into like german expressionism in the 1920s and that's pretty cool i think um sorry to wrap kind of all that we have like we see millier uh, make his movies and then the practice of or not the practice of like horror films kind of become more widespread well known or whatever as people like travel and they're seeing different movies or as movies travel they don't quite have the internet and they can't just stream stuff but the influences of these films i think it's cool the way it travels again german expressionism is something i want to dive into for at least a hot minute and how like that still endures to today like we still get a lot of those themes so i i looked this up okay i had a really hard un- time understanding german expressionism okay that's good because i just kept saying could you guys enlighten me i hope so because i just kept saying the words right now <laughs> i was like german expressionism really cool i'd like to talk more about german expressionism. <laughs> our expertise luke here do you have any uh kind of comments oh, man i was hoping Jaron was going to explain oh, never mind. it. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I, think I, don't care. I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the German expressionist movement, uh, at least one facet of it is the, the production, like as far as the set design and the images that they're creating. Well, specifically in the context of film, I, I'd assume it's a artistic movement in other, um, mediums as well, but it's internalizing or externalizing these internal like psychological aspects and so it's like i think um it's the cabinet of dr caligari is like the the big one right the milestone yeah Yeah. which i believe is famous for these set pieces where like the walls are warped and twisted and um so it's kind of like if like how if you were to describe a tormented building like what that would look like and then that's what they built to shoot on mm. so as you know the main characters tormented by the ghouls or the devil or whatever it is that the film's about the the set pieces around them represent what they're experiencing in like a physical form do you do you have a different understanding jaron um i really like that it's how the kind of the feeling of the film not just like it isn't just something that you get from the actors or maybe their lines or whatever but it encompasses everything like the set like they're in the again in the cabinet of dr caligari they had like misshapen walls or they had like they had some like heavy shadows and there was a lot of black paint involved and a lot of it was there to convey those feelings of hey this is kind of scary because it maybe 
maybe I'm going off a little too far here, but since the beginning of time, I'd argue that man has always associated darkness with like bad or like pain or scary or the unknown. Mm -hmm. And when things are light and bright, we can see everything. We can see what's coming usually. Um, And so in these early films, like early horror films, the lighting was just kind of, it was just kind of like a regular movie, but instead of, I don't know, like somebody fishing or doing something mundane it was some guy going into a cave and then oh no there's some skeletons here oh no there's ghosts oh no but with german expressionism the set contributes to the overall vibe and it's not just left on the actors so so like with that would it would that mean that it's trying to put unnatural views or like uh, like obviously angles and shapes and things of that nature, but mm-hmm. an unnatural view on an already unnatural subject. Does that make sense? Like to help encourage the the concept of the horror or yeah. terror or whatever? Yeah. And like 1920s Germany, like they just went through the first world war. And so their countries yeah. in not like, they're not in a good spot. Not mentally and, healthy at that point. Yeah. And that translate into their art and we get like, this groundbreaking concept of hey let's take what we feel and not just rely on our actors or our dialogue but let's try to incorporate every aspect of the film Mm. i think of when you stick a flashlight underneath your chin and the way that lights up your face that's kind of like a german expressionism or expression kind of a feel to it like you're highlighting something you wouldn't normally highlight in a way to make things scarier Okay. I think is what I want to say. That makes sense. I follow now. And if there are any art majors out there listening, feel free to shoot us an email or something and correct us. <laughs> yeah. And we'll make a follow-up. Tell okay. us how terribly wrong we are. <laughs> but I think we capture the spirit of it, but not quite as well as Alfred Hitchcock does. And in my notes, I just looked here, I wrote Albert Hitchcock, and I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> Albert Hitchcock. Oh, Go my Al. Al. Yeah. Um, but real quick, before we get there, so we have the 19, like 1920s, we're still in, and we get the first vampire movie that's ever made, and Nosferatu, I think is the correct pronunciation. I haven't seen it, but it was like kind of a knockoff of Bram Stoker's Dracula, I think. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Count Orlock. Yeah, Orlock, that's right. I was trying to remember the weird name that he used. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're still listening, dear listener, uh, we did watch some movies in preparation for this episode. And then, in true fashion, I, I started doing my research after I planned this episode. And I was like, oh my goodness, there's so much stuff to cover. Yeah. Before we even get to, like, Halloween or Psycho. Um, yeah. So, but I think we're okay to step into those now. We've done a pretty good base okay, work. Okay, and we even mentioned Albert Albert Hitchcock. Ah, <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> who is? I think one of his titles is like the Master of Suspense. Yeah. Really That's quick. A pretty impressive title. Before yeah. uh, jumping to Hitchcock, I saw in in your notes here, Jaron, you have that. Um, Oh, where was it? Um, 
Oh yeah, going back to Dr. Caligari that it introduced the twist ending and unreliable oh, unreliable yeah. narrator, which I think is awesome because right. I'm, I'm a fan of both of those things. Yeah, And yeah. then I just wanted to touch on, so in the 40s, um, so like the expressionist, German expressionist movement had a heavy influence like in the late 20s and 30s. And then in, it kind of got wrote, I guess, I think like going through the history of film, I really started to gain an appreciation for trends. And then, you know, Dr. Caligari is this big thing. And so everybody's trying to replicate that. And then after, mm. you know, 15, 20 years, people are bored because they're seeing the same thing. Yeah. And so um, RKO Productions, they hire uh, this guy named Val Luton to produce a couple of films and they give him a super small budget and the name of a movie and he can do whatever he wants with it. <laughs> and so it, it, I think the most famous of those, I think he did a series of films, but the most famous is The Cat People in 1942 which okay. you're coming out of the German expressionist movement in the American film landscape created um, or I guess further emphasized the Gothic horror because they got big into book adaptations like Dracula, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but they were all about these big set pieces, right? Replicating, like you said, these massive castles and the sense of scale or the reality of, of, the monster and then Val Luton, he has you know probably a couple tens of thousands of dollars he can't rent out a castle he can't make frankenstein's monster and so yeah. that's when we start to see this trend where films are about suspense they're about mood they're about the emotional manipulation of the audience more than putting a scary monster on screen and uh one of the reasons i wanted to bring that up is because I learned a new term in my research, Ooh. which is a cat scare or a Luton bus, which what? is in a in a film where you're building up tension and you know you think something's going to scare you, and then the protagonist turns a corner and it's just a cat, you know, and then it hisses at them and mm -hmm. runs away. Or in the cat people, the famous scene, apparently there was I haven't seen it, but there was a cat man that was going around uh, killing people. And okay. there's a scene where a woman's walking down the sidewalk and the cat man is following her. And then you hear this hiss and you think the monster's about to get her, but it turns out to be just the brakes squilling on a bus. Oh. And so that's why it's called a loot and bus or a cat scare. So you're building this suspense, you're building up the emotion. And then when you, the audience thinks you're going to scare them, it turns out to be nothing. And then you okay. can heighten that that up again and then give them a jump scare instead so it's kind of you know an evolution of so did, artistic form yeah but, it like intensifies it because you can compound basically the the suspense yeah that makes sense interesting oh man cat scare i like that i think it's I think a cool that's term my favorite thing i've learned yeah that's cool Anyway, okay. so wow. <laughs> no, thank yeah, you. That was fantastic. Cool. <laughs> yeah, so jump into our, our boy Albert Hitchcock. <laughs> Good old it's Albert. Alfred. I know it's Alfred. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if he were still alive today, he would uh he would not stand for this slander. <laughs> um so yeah, so in 1960, well, so Albert I keep saying Albert. Okay. <laughs> this is funny. So ah uh, 
Um, so Hitchcock, as I shall heretofore here for to, that I'll show that I will refer to him henceforth. So he's making like all of his Alfred Hitchcock presents film or TV series, and he's filming that out at the Paramount lot, and then he's wants to make a horror movie, and so he's got Psycho, which is based on a book. And so he brings it to Paramount, and they're like, Albert, because that's what they called him <laughs> when they were mad at him. Um, Albert, we can't we can't do this. This book that you want to make a movie of, it's too repulsive, or it's, it's impossible to do with films. And Alfred Hitchcock is like, what? But he says it in an uh, English accent, because he's English, right? <laughs> um, and so he, uh, he, he's denied his usual budget, and Paramount wants nothing to do with the film. So he's like, you know what? Fine. I'll finance this. I'll produce it with my own uh, company. And we're going to make this a great movie. And so he uses a lot of his television actors and shoots on set, like on his regular set, because he doesn't have a huge budget. So he's just like, I'm going to make do with what I have. And to cut costs even far farther, I'm going to shoot in black and white which I think is really cool. And for the movie, for me at least, I'm, I feel like that really lends itself to the vibe. Yeah, I didn't know until revisiting it that it was a choice to shoot on black and white. I think I saw it growing up when I was a kid, and I just assumed it was such an old movie that they didn't have color back then. But exactly. right. you know, he's coming off like North by Northwest shooting Technicolor, and you know, he's like, okay, we're going to do black and white. Significantly and cheaper. We're gonna hire, you know, actors nobody's really heard of, you know, um, mm -hmm. Janet Lee and uh, whoever plays Norman Bates. They weren't like big oh. actors at the time, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of also a break from what he was doing before, right? Yeah, I mean, as a director, you have to make those kind of decisions. So it was, it was cool that he had the the humility because not a lot of directors will do that you know they're like oh no i want my big stars i want my big names in this but he had the humility to be like nope not worth it yeah well and that's what get what used to get people out to the movies what still gets people out to the movies like oh this big person oh timothy chalamet is in dune yeah. zendaya is in dune wow i gotta i gotta go see that exactly and then um because i'm just gonna keep hitting this dune thing <laughs> anna de armas uh, is in the new bond film right yeah. Will Smith is in that new film about um, the Williams sisters. Uh, King or, Richard. Yeah. Like, I'm going to go watch that because I love Will Smith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, we have these big actors, and then Alfred Hitchcock is like, I don't have a big budget, so we're going to go with people I know, people I like working with, and people that I can fit in this budget. And, wow, what a movie, though. Like... I think when I first watched it, I saw like snippets of it from Psych when they had their big serial killer themed episodes. Oh, that's so funny. I forgot about that. <laughs> and then later on, I was like, there was a time in my life where I was like, oh, shoot, I can't watch this movie. It's rated R. And then I watched Psycho and I was like, Psycho's rated R? Yeah, for the time. Wow. Oh, well, I guess they didn't have PG-13, so I guess yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. I, I wouldn't yeah. call it PG for sure. <laughs> no, no, yeah. it definitely takes a step above that. Yeah. 
Um, and so I really, I really like Psycho as a film, um, whether it's just like the period they shot it in or whatever. Like, I really, I really like it. Yeah, for a minimal budget, he really took the time to make it as appealing as possible or unappealing as possible, however you want to look at it. Yeah. Um, just real quick, though, before I forget, because I want to, like, throw out this Halloween tidbit, because in the film, um, when Anthony, it's Anthony Perkins? Yeah. Um, yeah, he's... One of his improvs with Norman Bates is he's eating candy corn. And because it was black and white, I didn't pick up on that. And then I was like, whoa. I just had an episode about candy corn, so I, I got I to gotta yeah, bring gotta that up. I got to mention that little factoid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is such a weird thing, because, like, why would you associate that with the character's mindset? spooky. I don't know. Like, it didn't make it's sense spooky. to me, but okay. <laughs> it adds to the film, like, not in a bad way. It's a good thing. It was just such a an interesting concept that the director was like, hey, here's the character you're going to be playing. Have at it. Just don't move the cameras. <laughs> yeah. So, um... The same year, 60, when Psycho came out, there was another film called Peeping Tom, mm-hmm. which is about a guy who goes around killing women and filming it. Oh, dear. But um, I feel like those two are mentioned as the start of like another transition in the genre where now we're, we're like making a conscious effort to break away from the, the gothic horror that has you know, been the box office mainstay Obviously, there's been trends, you know, like in the in the fifties after the after World War Two, there was like everybody was scared about radiation, and so you have yeah. them and yeah, uh, you know, radioactive spiders and ants and aliens and stuff like that. But throughout the history of horror, there's there has been and still is today, and probably always will be this um, relationship with the occult. You know, it's all about the supernatural. And Peeping Tom and Psycho are kind of precursors to what we'll get to a little bit later, which is slashers, right? Where yeah, there's yeah, yeah. not really anything occult about it. It's a psychopathic human who's out mm-hmm. there killing other people. And I think that that's a, in large part why I think Psycho is so effective, even you know, 60 years after it was made, is yeah, really. because it's grounded in reality. And plus... You know, everybody showers and you don't realize how susceptible you are yeah, to really being stabbed though. by a psychopath until you watch Psycho. Yeah. It's so weird because, yeah, like it's such an interesting concept that like we enjoy, humans enjoy that adrenaline rush, that little scare and thing. So for sure there's going to be the fantasies and sci-fis and things. But man, there is something genuinely terrifying about realizing that a human can just come up and take you out (laughs) terrible things to you (laughs) not okay so another historical tidbit for psycho um it's the first major motion picture that has a toilet flush on screen and for some reason the writer of the film really wanted that to happen so that's why you have the sequence where janet lee writes uh, what is it? Forty thousand dollars that she stole. She writes how much money yeah, she stole yeah. on a piece of paper and then tears it up and throws it in the toilet. He wrote that scene just so 
that they would have to film a toilet and put it in a movie, <laughs> which oh, I think is ridiculous. But Why? <laughs> like, what is the draw there? It hadn't been done, right? Yeah, we to be the first. Today, so. Yeah, I guess it's true. Something to Still. it. Yeah, a lot of people talk about the shower scene, but you know, or like the stair scene. But we want to talk about the toilet oh, scene. Yeah. That's the most vulnerable place yeah. in the house, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, no, it's it's pretty uh, – And like Luke was saying, it's grounded in this – it's grounded in reality. So, like, you can – we connect with it. We're like, oh, shoot, oh, shoot. She's in the shower. There's a silhouette. Oh, no. And then I guess – well, so my grandma – um, not that she listens to the podcast, but she, I was talking to her about it one time. And she's like, oh, I'm not going to watch that movie ever again. I watched it and I couldn't shower forever. That's so funny. And I was like, interesting. Like just how the genres progressed and how we want these bigger thrills. And then we look back at what's been done and we're like, oh, pff, whatever. That's not that scary. Yeah, supposedly for years after Janet Lee would like go through her house and lock all the doors and windows before she would shower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that scene's pretty intense. Also, I think it's interesting that the shower scene, depending on like if you're talking about just when the mother shows up or the whole scene, you know, it's three minutes or about a minute if it's just the killing. Mm -hmm. But that three minutes... There's so much about it. Like everybody discusses it. They they talk, they break down, you know, the editing, the shot selection. There's a feature length documentary about that one scene where they go like frame by frame and they break it down, which is interesting. I think it's called a uh, 5872 because it's the number of uh, setups and the number of cuts in the Right. Like, so it's 56 seconds and there's like 50 and there's like 72 cuts or 58 cuts. Dang. Which is like, was revolutionary for the time. Yeah. Now we'll see faster editing, but back then I just wasn't done. And it it's really intense just yeah. how fast it moves and how much it shows. But at the same time, it doesn't really show you all that much. But yeah, it's like so it's visceral. not really a gory vicious any sort of crazy violent scene well i mean there's violence but it's like you don't see anything yeah. there's just this this mindset like we were saying this mindset that you can put yourself in her position and be terrified because you know it could happen and that's why i feel like it tracks so well and continues to track and like be realistic and applicable to all of us it's so nuts yeah we could talk about psycho probably for <laughs> another hour or so if we wanted to but i'm like we should talk about these other movies how long of a podcast should we make <laughs> but then i'm like you know what if i if we want to make a long podcast that's fine people listen to it or they won't listen yeah. to it but we gotta make it part of me is like oh yeah we should like jump from the suspense or like kind of those elements of the unknown where as a viewer we like know something's going on but then the actor doesn't know and then I think maybe that could be a good tangent for us to like dive into one of these other movies. And for the sake of chronological order, I'd like to get into Scooby-Doo. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Just kidding. No, no, no. We're talking about Halloween. <laughs> I mean, Scooby-Doo applies to that situation, but. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of ghosts yeah. and zombies and ghouls. 
It's true. Jeez. There's a lot of stuff. Sorry. They're all fake, remember? Uh, I, wait, I think... Not all of them, Rob. What about not all Zombie them. Island? Aren't those real? I don't know. I don't know that show nearly well enough to talk about it. All right, so we'll we'll file Scooby-Doo away for another day. Go. The history of Scooby-Doo, <laughs> yeah. coming soon. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> A special series. <laughs> Man. Okay, I think we should do that. Because <laughs> there's a lot of... Anyway, so jumping into Halloween. Um, it is Halloween, dear listener, when you'll hear this, at least. And I thought, what better way to celebrate this holiday than to talk about Halloween? And what what movies are about Halloween? And then I thought, the movie Halloween. And so I watched the movie Halloween. And now I'm ready to talk about the movie Halloween. I didn't get to this one, unfortunately. I'm sorry, guys. I'm so You didn't miss anything, Rob. That's what I'm understanding (laughs) at this point. This this is the one to miss. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um. Yeah, Luke, where where do you want to start with this? Because there's so much to talk about here. Um, hot take, Halloween is a bad movie. And <laughs> the only redeemable quality in the entire film is John Carpenter's soundtrack. Hmm. Halloween theme is yeah. good. Halloween film is bad. Yeah. <laughs> All right, good to know. I'll just go listen to the soundtrack. Call it good. We should... Okay, since we're using Anchor... We should drop like on Spotify. You can like add a song to the beginning of your episode. So I'll like have that. We'll do that in lieu of our regular intro. <laughs> have it be, the be cool. Halloween. <laughs> yeah. Be and so if you've made it this far, listener, you know what we're yeah, talking about. Yeah, you get about. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And I am, I, I think I'm on the same train of thought as Luke on this one. Halloween was not great. And sure, maybe it was like an indie film and nobody would really done slasher films except for maybe like what we talked about earlier, Psycho and Peeping Tom. Like slashers weren't huge. And then Halloween comes along and slashes its way into America's hearts. And then, then we're making a podcast about it like what, 50 years after saying, I don't like this. <laughs> But see, so, there's a point where it can be good. Like you said, the movie Psycho and Peeping Tom, like they created the suspense that it was applicable. But the Halloween yeah, must uh, not have done that in a way that no, you can track and feel yeah. like you're a part of it. It's just all jump scares and things like that, I'm imagining. Wow. It, it really, yeah. I didn't think it had any jump scares. Oh, really? My biggest thing is it's so slow. Like oh. Michael Myers is not scary. He's he no. walks like a geriatric man slowly chasing down these teenagers. It's like you could yeah. slowly walk away from him and you'd be fine. <laughs> yeah, just right. to keep back up, keeping an eye on him. <laughs> yeah. Never get you that way. <laughs> yeah. Um I guess well, maybe one thing to throw John Carpenter's way besides the soundtrack though is the opening sequence I thought was kind of cool. Like we we go we're seeing it through michael myers like his mask and we're seeing what's what he's seeing and maybe it alludes to like i don't know i didn't feel like the story was that great um if there was much of a story but i just thought it was kind of cool like we we see through like the killer's eyes for a few moments 
and I don't feel like that's something we usually see. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Or maybe I don't watch enough like horror or thriller movies. I don't know. <laughs> I'd never seen so that I like before. That. Yeah. And you're our expert, so if <laughs> you guys have seen it, it hasn't. It doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that was interesting. I and. I think conceptually, I like it a lot, especially since it's like a cold open, right? And you start yeah. and you know, because like we have the cinematic language, you know, you're watching somebody's perspective because it's handheld, because you have the dirty mm -hmm. frame with like the window and the trees in front. Mm -hmm. So, you know, somebody's looking into this window at these teenagers, but you don't know who it is. And then, you know, he goes and picks up the knife and he puts on his mask and then the big reveal is he's a, what, five-year-old kid, seven-year-old kid? Yeah, like, he's just this little oh, kid. Oh, weird. And, like, yeah, so he kills his sister because she and her boyfriend were doing it. That makes sense, And obviously. And I guess that's kind of, like, I don't know. I don't know if I'd call it, like, a motivation or anything, but all of his other victims throughout the film are engaged in some sort of, like, sexual action and like he sees them and like he gets like the heavy panting through the mask and and goes stalks him and then eventually kills huh. them the ideas i think like the concepts and maybe for the time the concepts were huge and like whoa this is so crazy um but i don't feel like there's enough time spent on any of the elements to really connect the viewer to anything besides this is a slasher movie. People are going to die. And I know that they're going to die. Hmm. Um, there is there is one scene that just really bothered me. It's when her one friend is in the laundry room and she's trying to get out through the window. And the way she was climbing out of the window, I was like, nobody climbs out of a window <laughs> like that. Like, you, you can't get your foot stuck in... Um, like what a towel rack or whatever it was what? like that like that doesn't this doesn't make sense so like a, a normal towel rack that's on a wall well she got a second it's not that? a towel rack it's not a towel rack but it's kind of like open cabinet kind of a deal like an open back cabinet oh. with some rods on it she was trying to like climb out the window and we've seen michael myers at this point like he's broken some stuff and he's like there kind of yeah. luring her oh, out okay. and then the sister goes in and it's like, hey, the phone's for you. And she's like, oh, I'm stuck in the in the window. Don't tell whoever's on the phone about it. Oh. <laughs> and I just, maybe it's because it was low budget. I don't know. But that, <laughs> there was just like little things like that that I really, that threw things off for me as I was trying to like get into it. I was like, I, I wouldn't climb out of a window like that. Like, I don't know. Well, I also hated that scene, but for a different reason. <laughs> okay. So I feel like that scene disrespects the entire premise of Halloween and kind of slasher films in general. Because like you said, there's not much to go on. There's not really a story in slasher. Mm -hmm. It's there's a killer, there's victims, and you're just like watching the inevitability of their deaths and like, oh, how yeah. is he going to kill the next guy? That's really all there is in a slasher and so you have to make like i i feel like slasher fans they're all about the kills right mm. like the mm -hmm. most inventive gory kill you can make is the reason they're coming to the theater okay but michael myers is a sociopath like he wears a mask so we can't relate to him because he has no facial expression yeah and yeah. like he 
that you even give the doctor a monologue about how there's no logic, there's no reason, there's no filling between his between, behind his cold, lifeless eyes. All he wants yeah. is to kill. And yet yeah. he's standing outside the laundry room. She's all alone. It's 10 o'clock at night. It's pitch black. He's four feet from her. Why would he not kill her then? Mm. Why does he wait another right. half hour to kill her? It doesn't make right. any sense. Yeah. So yeah. they like almost didn't build work on building the suspense throughout the movie. Well, you see him there and you're like, oh, it's it's, it's going to happen or here's the kill coming. And then the person turns around. Nobody's there. Mm. And it's just kind of it just kind of drags out like he sees the people and he's supposed to just want to kill people. And that's all we get from him. And then it just he just delays it and delays. Huh. So they delays. almost build the suspense wrong then, if that makes sense. Well, and like Luke was saying, you kind of betray the viewer because you go into the movie expecting there to be these gruesome yeah. deaths or something. That's kind of like that unspoken agreement there. And then a time and time again, you're just disappointed. It's like, oh, you came to see my movie? Ah, oop, gotcha. I mean, how, many, yeah, how gruesome like can it get with a knife, really? It's not, there's not much going on. I like what you were saying, though, Rob, because... In my opinion, it is building the suspense wrong because, like, you've isolated this character. You know she's alone. You know the killer's behind her. And then he just disappears. And it's not like he disappears and something else happens. Mm -hmm. He disappears. And then she slowly tries to climb through a, a window in the worst way possible, yes, so getting weird. stuck on a towel rack. And then another character comes in, you know, a couple minutes later. And I think the proper, like, curve of the suspense is she's alone the killer shows up the killer's getting closer and then you can do a cat scare right there right yeah, yeah. she turns around mm -hmm. and she's startled by somebody you think it's the killer but it turns out it was the girl coming out to tell the her friend, somebody's on the phone for sure yeah right and then that drops the tension back down but it isn't you build up this tension and nothing happens and nothing happens and then just the story continues you build up the tension yeah Oh, it's a cat scare. And then you pull up the tension. This time it's actually the killer. Yeah. That's a much better film. Yeah. I mean, that's, I yeah. think that's why Psycho was so effective, is because it did that. Like you actually had something happen and it made yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Um, yeah. So there's better slashers out there. <laughs> Probably any of them. At oh, this point. dear. That's a bold claim, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> <laughs> So if there's if there's anything to give Halloween though, I think from my understanding, it is the first real slasher. Like obviously we've talked about how it's influenced by Psycho, and I think uh, Black Christmas is another one that people refer to a mm. lot as uh, mm. the birth of the slasher genre. But Halloween is like I think the first like really big critical success that spawned the slasher genre, and right from the first film you know you have this psychopathic killer you have a group of teens that are being killed because of their promiscuity which is a trope in slashers mm -hmm. and yeah you have um just it's kind of an emphasis on like the gory kills and the inevitability of their death and then you also have the la the final girl right with jamie lee curtis getting away yeah. mm -hmm which is a trope that we still see in slashers today. Yeah. So I think it is kind of cool that, you know, from this first film that kind of you could call the start of the genre, it already has, you know, four, 
three to five tropes that have held strong and relatively unchanged through the decades. Mm. Yeah. I don't think it does Maybe them like, well, but it does establish that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's key. Right. At yeah, least. Yeah. And so we hit like the 80s and 90s after the success of Halloween. We get like Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and so on and so forth. And they're sequels because what do we love more than an original a sequel <laughs> and texas chainsaw um, massacre too oh yeah yes yes and so we get we get all of these films and then like we get scream like it just the list builds and builds and people are like yeah this is cool i guess and we like we've seen before what people are expecting the expectations are like the cultural norms or like what we have in yeah. these movies it, it gets old people get bored of it and then in 99, we get the Blair Witch Project, which takes horror in a different direction than any of these previous films. I, I, didn't, I honestly didn't find the Blair Witch Project to be very scary. I don't know why. It just didn't catch me very well. I don't know. Did you like it? Yeah, it or was good. Was like it boring? No, or? it was filmed well. I, it was just like, eh. It wasn't that scary. scary. It wasn't a scary movie to me. I was like, oh, it's just a weird documentary. Okay, strange. Why are we watching this? <laughs> I, gra- I granted that's how they wanted it to be because it creates this new genre almost of what? What is it? What do they call it? Like found footage, right? Found footage technique. Yeah. Where it's it's not this clean, crisp panning across, coming into people's like zooming in and out. It's some rando with a tape recorder. Like yeah. showing his experience and running terrified and like trying to look around stuff at, from his eyes and stuff. And not so much. It's not the uh, the killer or the the evil guy slasher. It's the actual victim and his genuine perspective. So I thought that was, that that part was really neat to me. I like that a lot. But yeah, um, not not scared. Me. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> fair enough that's fine i mean we don't have i'll have to agree on what's scary and what's not like it's all good um i really with the blair witch project like it was something i'd heard of and i'd never watched it and i was like you know what let's keep doing things you've heard of and never actually done (laughs) and so i watched it and i was like i i i thought it was pretty i liked the way it built the suspense i liked seeing how the relationship between um our three protagonists characters or whatever you want to call them like i liked seeing that break down as you know they go out to film this documentary of like a local legend and then they get lost and then it's like i really liked how it explored those relationships between the characters and then from that like we start to like like we're seeing them fall apart but then oh no something else is going on outside of this I think the other biggest reason why I like these so much, though, is because the entire time you're fully in the mind space of the so-called victims. And that makes mm-hmm. it so like enjoyable for me because it allows me to very easily just see it and feel it and be a part of it way easier than it is for like a Halloween-type slasher <laughs> or like a paranormal-type right. thing because – Sure, it could happen, but it hasn't <laughs> type of thing, you know? But this one, I'm living through it with them. So it's really fun for me. So, Rob, um, have you seen, like, a lot of other found footage 
are you a fan of like the genre in general? I don't know if I'd call myself a fan, but every time I watch them, I'm like, oh yeah, I like that. I think I don't like seek them out if that makes sense. But I, every time I watch them, I enjoy yeah, them. But if you come across it, you enjoy it. Yeah, very much. So I think I agree with this idea that what makes found footage good is it has a visceral mm-hmm. feeling to it because if you buy into the premise of the film, you know, you're watching yeah. something real and you know, the handheld perspective shots, the way the people interact mm-hmm. with the cameras, it lends it all a sense of reality, but also that's where you get into the issue, especially with found footage leaning i I don't think i've seen a found footage that wasn't about you know a monster or Mm. an alien or you know the suspenser or horror aspect to it and so you reach a certain point where it's like okay but you know you're being chased by this ghost or this witch or whatever it is out there in this forest so why are you still filming (laughs) and i feel like they do a lot of work in blair witch to kind of explain why that's a good point you know they're already there they are there to film about the witch and i think they even have a couple of scenes where they get on heather or whatever her name is yeah about oh you put the camera down put the camera down and she's like this is all i have left i gotta film yeah at, at that point, it starts to yeah, stretch. That's you know? true. That's an interesting point. I never put that together. I liked how they tried to explain it though, as like her her way to disconnect from what was happening. And I think that's what we use movies for a lot. And going back to our theatrical experience thing earlier, it's something like being in a theater helps us disconnect from all of our distractions that we have. And like in the Blair Witch Project, that's how Heather was like detaching from we're lost we're getting chased by this supernatural thing and we never actually see spoiler (laughs) we never see um the the witch or the thing that's chasing them or hunting them and i thought that was kind of cool like we just keep building suspense and then heather's like filming because she's like i don't want to be in reality anymore and that's something that i relate to (laughs) sometimes a a lot um not me so um so like there's a bit of escapism there that i was like yeah if i was in this kind of a situation i too would try would try to like not be there live through the screen instead yeah yeah makes sense when i was watching i like i understood the logic behind that but i didn't really connect with it but i was listening to the cinematographer roger deakins Mm -hmm. and he was talking about um he has a podcast as well and he interviews you know people in the film industry but he talks about how when you're there when you're operating camera you kind of forget that you're there because you're so drawn into the image you're capturing and so Hmm. apparently it's not uncommon for camera operators to you know be standing right next to a charging horse or right next to you know a building collapse and somebody's got to like tell him hey like you're like a foot away from death my guy (laughs) and they're like really i was so captivated by what i was watching on my through the through the viewfinder i didn't even pay attention so i think the that premise of why they keep filming is more reasonable than i first felt how interesting because yeah i mean i can't say i've ever been in a situation where it was life-threatening and I was filming. I've never had that happen. 
So that's very interesting that those that do it as a profession, it happens to them on a regular basis. How strange. I like that. That's a nice, nice little weird psychological issue that we have as humans. (laughs) (laughs) So I think another cool thing about the Blair Witch Project, because I I like this more than Halloween, so I was like, this is cool, because Halloween was not cool. Um, I liked how it was... I liked the controversy surrounding its release, how they were like, hey, all of these people that are in this movie, they're missing, they're deceased, and um, they shot it like super low budget. I think I was reading something, and it was for like every dollar they spent on the film, they made 10000 and change oh like per dollar. And so I was like, whew, whew. good job, yeah, guys. That's impressive. <laughs> Um, so it was like a $60,000 budget excluding post-production fees. And so it grossed at the time like almost $250 million. So it's like 4,000 times over the original budget. And these are numbers I can't like wrap my mind around because they're so big. Seriously. Or it was the first film that used the internet to like promote its film and like really get it out there. And I thought that was pretty cool too because the internet's been around for like my whole life. But then... At the time when this was released, it was kind of a new thing. But to go along with what you were saying, Jaren, about the Blair Witch Project, to go along with it, um, like, Internet's relatively new. It would make me distrust the Internet so bad because it's like a huge – it's one of the first movies hugely po- uh, popularized by the Internet, and they're lying to me. <laughs> they're saying, oh, yeah, these people are missing. Ooh, got them. And, like – are they dead or like assumed dead or whatever like man right I, I know i was alive during this time when it was coming out but i wasn't old enough to really register what was going on but had i been at an older age and this was happening i would hate that i would hate this new technology <laughs> <laughs> oh. do you think if somebody uh, tried to do that today you'd believe it though I, I would be interested in how they would go about it today. Yeah, because like uh, just... how, that person would have to be locked up for them to be able to not be photographed and thrown on the or videotaped and thrown on the internet in some sort of way, shape, or form. You know? Yeah, and even with like all of the um, stuff we do, or like stuff that um, companies do to like mitigate um, sneak peeks or like. Mm-hmm releases or spoilers or whatever we still have stuff where like mark ruffalo accidentally leaves his phone on during um ragnarok or whatever it was and so like you get some of that from his instagram or something or tom holland just tells you the entire plot because he's notorious for yeah that. <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> so like i don't know i would be interested in into like how they do it i'd almost um be more interested in that than perhaps the actual movie or the story that they were trying to tell (laughs) just because we have so many more hoops to jump through now than we did back in the late 90s that would be hard yeah well because from your notes it it sounds like they went all out on like that's how they're going to market the film like Mm -hmm. they have pretend interviews with actors who are pretending to be detectives Mm -hmm. or talking about the case they put up missing person posters you know they're asking for information on these people but I I don't know. I kind of feel like the internet would is the denizens of the internet are much more skeptical today. Like mm. I think people would be like, "Nah, there's no way this is real." Nice try. Yeah. 
Sure, but like even then they they did that because of different things like Sundance. They're like, no, these people are missing. Like we don't know where the actors are. We're presenting you this uh, this film that we can't find them, but we're trying to show it to you to like show the world their experience. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess how how many people in authority would it take telling you that this is true before you believe it? Exactly. That's a good mm. point. I don't know. Nowadays, it would have to be a lot more than it probably was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think it was really cool how they went all out to really sell it, to like con the audience into like, this is fan footage. And then... <laughs> Psych. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got you. I mean, they never like say in the movie that this is totally fake. I mean, there's the little ending you have at every film where like the names and places are Fictional. like the yeah, and any coincidence or any resemblance or whatever. Yeah, but like who watches till that point? Yeah, nobody. And at that point, <laughs> you're like so embedded in the story that you're like, I don't believe it. What the heck's happening? <laughs> But could we also make an argument for the credits and like watching all of those as part of like appreciating the work of everybody involved in the project? Mm. I mean, you it's like can. another tangent to go on, really. I don't know. That's just something <laughs> I've been thinking about. Like, and I like I try to watch the credits now, but actually, let's let's jump back in time. So we talked about Psycho, and Psycho was probably. I could be vastly wrong, but I think it's the second or third collaboration between Hitchcock and Saul Bass, the man who like made credit sequences art. Mm. Mm-hmm. So um, it has, you know, the, the music in Psycho is incredible, but it has that jarring score. Mm-hmm. And then as like the chords screech on, you know, the violins or whatever they're playing, you have those lines kind of like, slash through the screen with mm-hmm. the names on right. them and Saul Bass he in the probably mid to late 50s started designing title sequences for films because before that point when the film started you would have like just these pretty cookie cutter um like title cards that just yeah. have you know the character and the actor and they're all the same for all of the films you go, you know, you, you go watch a, a horror film, you go watch night of the living dead. And then next week you watch a rom-com and they have essentially the same title sequence. And then Saul Bass comes along and he's like, no title sequences are art. Like you watch the psycho title sequence. It's jarring. It has this intensity, this violence to it. And so he's trying to cue up the audience to the experience of the film. Interesting. I like that. And like, I think Psycho is for me the big one. I think uh, Anatomy of the Murder might have been before Psycho that he also did. But it's like at when it's really starting to take hold. And sadly, I think it only lasted less than two decades because then movies got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so now, you know, you have seven minutes of credits at the (laughs) end of the movie because they're too long to put at the beginning. Yeah. We have terrible attention spans as the movie's beginning. <laughs> yeah. Um, just on opening credits real quick, though, I think back to like Indiana Jones and Star Wars and how those um, kind of broke away from the tradition of like showing mm-hmm. all of your actors, your directors, like every the whole everybody that was involved with production of the movie, like at the front. 
and they were like, you know what, we're gonna show like our little mountain and the stars over, and then boom, we're in, well, it was in Hawaii, but like wherever they're <laughs> supposed to be in South America, <laughs> and like they just kind of transition like that, and then you don't really get a such and such starring as this person or just whatever. Just right into the story. Yeah. Yeah. Even opening sequences, like you said, with Star Wars, they had this par- paragraphs explaining what you were getting into. So you had like a little prelude before the genuine story. Yeah. And so like, sorry, just a thought on that off the top of my head. So like, were this like the Star Wars opening credits where everything, the words just go up, is that really innovative or is that just like lazy writing like oh i don't want to put all this into a story so you get to read it at the beginning just just a a thought i don't know i guess if dune went that approach maybe rob would have stuck around it could have given me an idea of what i was half hour into a text scroll instead of half an hour a movie i would have been totally fine with that here's paul here's jessica here's leto they're going to this planet now start yeah there you go i would have i would have appreciated that oh man but I think another part of it could be a budgetary, right? So Star Wars, they're huge budget movies. Well, bigger budget movies. And they have lots of props and lots of different things. And lots of there's also lots to tell already. Horror yeah. films may not have that as much. It's pretty usually pretty cut and dry type of stuff, especially in slashers. So it makes sense why they don't exist in those types of genres. But it could be a budgetary thing. I hear what you're saying, Rob. And it's Jaron, stay on topic. I read you loud and clear here. I got you. <laughs> not what I was saying, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the vibe I was picking up, but uh, the other stuff is it good works, too. It works, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so Blair Witch Project, because that's, I, I think we were talking about mm-hmm. that. Unless you want to keep talking about opening credits. No, that's no, good. No, we're, we're good. Yeah. Let's go to Blair Witch. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so Blair Witch Project, just to wrap it up, I enjoyed it. Like, I had I had a good time watching it. Um, the only, my only real complaint was that I was watching it in 4K, and it was, like, filmed on the not 4K compatible oh, camera. And I was like, whew. And I know I d- they did a lot of the processing of the film in post, but still I was like, wow, this is really grainy on my TV. Yeah. Do you know, did they... Because they have the the camera that they're supposedly using for the documentary, like mm-hmm. is it actually shot on sixteen mil? I assume they don't yeah. have the budget for that. They all sh- they shot it all well, digital, right? On uh, I don't know. I don't. But remember. It's also the nineties, so like you either have film or like VHS camcorders. Yeah, exactly. Like, right. You couldn't shoot digital, and I guess film yeah. wouldn't be as expensive as it was today. But right. Um, all I really know about that is that the actors were the ones that were filming the whole movie, and I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, like they just would cool. drop, so they'd drop them off and like give them kind of like a rough idea of what was supposed to happen that day, and they'd say, "All right, head to this point. Here's like a GPS or a compass or something to get you there." And then one night they didn't actually make it, and they ended up staying in some <laughs> random house. Because they got lo- they they got lost for reals. <laughs> Maybe this was a real so, thing. Maybe they were trying to tell us well, the truth. <laughs> no, no, no. So the where's the Heather whole, right now? Yeah, exactly. She's still alive. <laughs> Heather, Heather. <laughs> um, 
yeah, no, they, they would drop the actors off and they would say, hey, get from point A to point B, sleep in this tent. And I guess Heather's character carried a knife with her because she was not comfortable with the idea of sleeping in a tent with two random Fair dudes. Fair enough. Right? And so, yeah, it was really just them wandering through the forest. And they were, so they had like eight days worth of footage and then they cut it down to however long the movie is now. And I thought that was pretty cool. Like I would have thought for sure that they were like doing cuts and different things. Like they had a whole cast there, or a whole crew. Yeah, I that's mean. crazy. No, it was it was super low budget. Like they made it for that part was like sixty thousand oh dollars, and so it was really a super easy job for the cameraman, I guess. Cause what cameraman? Give the yeah. actor their cameraman. <laughs> yeah. So I thought there were. I thought it was like two creators behind it, like a writer director team that co-wrote and co-directed. Yeah. Were yeah. they act? Were they the actors as well, or like? No, no. What, so what the... does directing entail? If you say, "Okay, you're gonna be lost in the forest. There's a <laughs> yeah. witch hunting you. Go film for eight days to bring back footage." Yeah. Like, act scared. <laughs> yeah, and so like they would the the crew would come in and take like their film for the day or whatever it was, and like collect mm. that, and like maybe give a little bit of a rundown of some things, or say, "Hey." Or like they'd give them a list of what they wanted to accomplish, um, and then another—I don't know—I don't know if it's fun, but another thing that they did was they slowly gave everybody less rations throughout oh, the filming process. And so when you see them like really start to lose it, like they are kind of going through those sleep deprived, hungry, um, like yeah, <laughs> yeah. So like That's me, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some major method acting there, but uh. I think that's um, almost torture at yeah. this point. Like, uh, it's weird. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It was the '90s, Rob. Did somebody say Kubrick and The Shining? Yeah, right. <laughs> oh man, he found his way into this podcast somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much all I had to say on the Blair Witch Project. Good I one. Recommend it if you haven't seen it. Honestly. Yeah. I I really loved the the dual cameras. I loved having mm. the the film camera and then like the behind the scenes camera. Mm. Yeah, and I I felt like that was a really good way to get the best of both worlds because then we can have you know Heather interviewing people and explaining like the Blair Witch and mm. like this is where they killed people and at the same time you have like the inter character react uh, or the between character interactions where, you know, they're just walking along and getting mad because they had to cross a stream <laughs> or lost a map. And <laughs> right. so I feel like you got the best of both worlds by having the two vantage points yeah. for found footage, which I thought yeah. worked really well. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Cause like we see that concept with like all sorts of doc or mockumentaries we see now, whether that's like what we do in the shadows, Wellington paranormal, the office parks and rec so on and so forth like we get oh hey this is what's happening in real time and then here's how everybody feels about it kind of a thing and i think that helps ground it in reality um and bring the viewer into it so not really anything of substance right there that no, i just said good. besides listing good. off shows um and speaking of listing off shows this brings us to the sixth sense i think i think that's where okay. i want to go are you, you guys are good to go there to yeah. visit this this uh, Bruce Willis vill, 
uh, vehicle. Dude, not going to lie. I saw this at a relatively young age, and it really blew my mind. Like it was spooky at yeah. a very young age. <laughs> like, my goodness. Well done. Well done story. <laughs> First and foremost, though, one of the reasons why I think why I think we chose this, maybe maybe this isn't a reason, but I think it, it, it really hammers home the idea of the twist ending. Mm-hmm. Like, you know how M. Night Shyamalan directs his movies. Yeah, they don't make sense and... half the time. Sorry, that was, well, that was a dig. I'm just kidding. more of his, just his later work. His, his early work is yeah, pretty solid. Is. Like The Sixth Sense, Signs, those are all, I feel pretty like, good. respectable mm-hmm. movies, yeah. And maybe even Unbreakable's not bad. Yeah. The Village? Oh, the no. Village, yeah, yeah. You like this? <laughs> I don't I really think it's one of his on. better works. I think it's better than Lady in the Water and that was Glass. that was hot garbage. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right, that's a fair point. Yeah. Anyway, so back to the Sixth Sense. M Night Shyamalan, not really a known director at this point, um, because this came out first, I think, before Signs, or maybe it was the other way. Okay. Yeah, and so, uh, I I think it's one of Bruce Willis's best movies, but. And it's not because he had hair, because his hair wasn't great in the film. I really liked this movie. I really liked everything but Halloween. Yeah. That's 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 all this. All I mean, saying. it sets up a really good premise, right? Because as a kid, it's very difficult to come to an adult with this issue. And the adult's like, man, you're just a dumb little imaginative kid. Go, go away type of thing. Or you're a nuisance for this yeah. type of stuff. So this kid is like, Again, when I saw it, I was younger, so I was like, okay, I relate to that kid in the beginning. And then crazy stuff happened, and I didn't relate it anymore. But... Or, or did you relate a little too well? Ah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so like it, it creates this really cool idea that I think most people, even at a very young age, can say, I get that point of view from the, from the boy that no one listens to me. I'm just seen as this dumb little kid. And yet these crazy things continue to happen to me. So it really appeals to a wider variety, in my opinion, of audience. I enjoyed that part of it, at least. I think we could even expand it from just like being a little kid and not having anybody listen to you. But I think, um, and maybe this is like a little deep of an angle to go to right off the bat, well, not that it's right off the bat, but like to go to at this point. But I think another angle is that you look at it through, uh, there's these people, this person that survives this trauma and they they don't have anybody to like talk to about mm-hmm. it. Sure, it's like a supernatural kind of a trauma. And I feel like this movie really lends an ear to victims. Like, hey, maybe something is happening. Like maybe what somebody claims like has some grain of truth mm-hmm. to it. Maybe we should hear them out or investigate this a little further. And that's what Bruce Willis's character really shows. I think like he, he talks to Haley Joel Osment and is like there for him and helps him out. There's some monetary things that were pretty cool. I thought about the film, not that it's related to the actual filming, but it did so well that it ranked 35th on the list of box office money earnings. That's pretty high. Like of all the films that we have, it's in the top 50. That's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy that that ranking is from 2010. I mean, it must have been a lot higher when it came out. Oh, for sure, yeah. 
Yeah. And if I was like a more dedicated researcher, I'd have some like more um, uh, updated <laughs> info. But okay. I think it, it helps serve the point that this movie was huge. Like it was, it spent five weeks at number one. So it was like pretty big deal. Pretty big deal. I think. Yeah. Made M. Night a like household name. Yeah. Right. Gave him a lot of leverage as to being an actor or a director of film. I like don't want to talk about but the it. ending, but I want to talk about the ending because it's so good. <laughs> Luke, do you have anywhere you want to go with this before Rob jumps into the <laughs> ending? Um, no, I I actually didn't um rewatch this one, so I'm let's go to the ending. Okay, right. <laughs> I mean, but that is to be fair though, that is like the big draw to Shyamalan, like we've said yeah. before. Like it's his end. He's a twist ending guy, so you he sets you up very much like okay starting at Bruce Willis's point of view he goes through this trauma he's like a, he's a, a psychologist or therapist i can't remember which anyway he helps people that have issues he goes through this original trauma and in the very beginning scenes it's 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 the gun it's a gunshot he he gets shot by one of his people that he supposedly helped but the kids like you didn't help me and i'm taking this out and then it cuts ahead like he's recovered and now he's helping this new kid and he's going through doing all this stuff. This kid is so traumatized by the fact that these things keep happening to him, right? So the the classic line is, I see dead people. And his parents don't believe him. His teachers don't believe him. Like none of these adults believe him. Bruce Willis comes in and he's like, all right. Let's talk about that. Let's unpack that box for you. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's so interesting how it sets you up to be thinking everything is in the moment correctly. <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> I'm like butchering the story. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think, I think uh, Shyamalan does a lot of, I think he does a really good job of exploring the relationship between Bruce Willis and Haley Joel Osment mm -hmm. and the how like Bruce Willis is helping Haley and how Haley's helping Bruce mm -hmm. and then he helps him in a very big way at the end. If you want to take that Yeah, yeah. Out. So the, the way that it is a horror is you do see some of these dead people and they're some of them are quite gruesome <laughs> and they do some oh, yeah. crazy weird things. <laughs> Or like the scene in the church where he gets locked in that room. I guess. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. I hate Isn't it's it not in like that. somebody's house when they're at a party? That, oh yeah, a house. Not goes a up to like an attic or something. Yeah, and they lock yeah. him. It was like a. It wasn't even like a dumbwaiter. Like it was a very specific storage space that was very mm -hmm. small door, very small everything, and he's just screaming. Yeah. Oh, it chills. Just thinking about it gives me chills. <laughs> yeah, like what a. Yeah, I, I did not enjoy that part, but like it's good, but it's like, huh. Like it really plays into your baser fears. Like, uh, what is that called? It's being scared of stuck in small claustrophobia. claustrophobia. Thanks, that was embarrassing. No, you're good, Rob. You're good. Nobody here's gonna judge you for that, especially if they've made it this far. <laughs> yeah, they'll judge me for other Shout things, worse to... things. I think it's interesting. I mean, I haven't seen the movie in years but just 
listening to you guys talk about is bringing back the memories. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do think it's cool um, talking about that relationship between uh, Haley Joel Osmond and Bruce Willis because relating it back to Psycho, like Psycho, there's so much going on with the story. You know, you have, it starts like a crime story almost. She's still in the money to go be with her lover and then the lover and the private detective and the sister are looking for mm. her and you have the subplot with Norman and his mother. Well, I don't know. it's a well, subplot until we find out yeah, the twist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, and then in uh, the sixth sense we have, you know, it's essentially a drama about this kid working through this trauma that's making him see dead yeah. people. If, because we don't know he's actually seeing dead people at that yeah. point. Right? Yeah. And, um, so it plays a drama about, you know, a therapist helping a child. And I think that's the, the, what makes movies like that so good is if you take away, you know, the slasher aspect of Psycho, you could still have a compelling story about, you know, this woman stealing money or mm -hmm. going missing and trying to find her. You know, it could be a crime story. It could be a detective story. And with a sixth sense, you could take out the occult aspect or the, you know, the, ghost aspect and it could be a film about a therapist or a counselor helping yeah, this kid and trauma and so when you have like this characters and they have relationships and something substantive then you can build on you know the suspense or the you could have jump scares or ghosts or whatever you want but you have that strong base of a story mm -hmm. And I think that's one reason why Halloween really falls flat. Because <laughs> I guess there's it. kind of maybe a story with Michael Myers that, yeah. you know, I guess he hates people having sex, but like yeah. there's not really a story yeah. there. Yeah. To then, you know, it doesn't have that foundation. Whereas The Sixth Sense really lays that, that brickwork, that foundation work with helping us understand who this kid is and. You know, he has several scenes with Tony Collette as his mm -hmm. mother, where we know it's like maybe not the best relationship. Yeah. Um, they're not the closest as they could be. And then when this therapist comes in, it just there there's enough there that we we buy into, you know, whatever else we're going to mm -hmm. see. Right. Yeah, well, just talking about the mom, like the one of the scenes that always sticks out to me is in the kitchen, right? The the camera oh sees the boy sitting at the table, relatively small kitchen, follows the mom out of the kitchen into a room and then immediately back into the kitchen. And it's a span of like two seconds, three seconds, very short time. And all the stuff is open. And the mom's like, what is wrong with you? Why are you making such a mess? All the cabinets, all the cupboards, like everything is just wide open. She's like, why would you do something? And he's like, I didn't do it. Why would I I'd like, it's it was this thing that did it <laughs> and it's not even possible yeah. for him to do it so yeah playing into that aspect it like makes you think okay this boy is in a difficult situation so a therapist would make sense to be here yeah <clears throat> um and just going off with kind of these or going along with these thoughts i think that's one thing that really helps sell the theatrical experience or like seeing a movie in theaters is when there is a story that focuses on the connections that we have or that 
some person has with their other person. Like it provides you something you can relate to. And then depending on where the director takes it or how the story goes, like that's, I think that's one of the best ways to draw people in is to make it a story and have that base be about like a person's relationship with others or their relationship with themselves or their relationship with the world. But like focusing on that more than say, oh, this guy is a killer. He's going to kill all these people and uh, we're going to have a dope soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I just, I like movies that have a story or like that really draw me in. So like everything but Halloween, I guess. Didn't do that. <laughs> no. So to finish real quick. Wow, poor John Carpenter. We're really laying it on pretty thick. <laughs> wow. It's okay though, because we're gonna sl- we're gonna stick his song at the beginning of the But honestly, if the, the show, shoe I fits, I mean uh, I don't know. <laughs> well it's, I guess again, maybe to be a little less harsh on him, it was his first film he directed too. Oh, oh that's, yeah, that's okay. nice. So so like it's super easy to sit and back. She's got a first timer over here, is all. It's no big deal. Yeah, and like the his first movie he made, it went big and inspired, or helped really grow the slasher genre. So he, I mean, credit where credits yeah, due. For but sure. I really, I just, I didn't like Halloween. Yeah, I didn't know it was his first his directorial debut. That's crazy. Okay, yeah. maybe I shouldn't hate on him so hard. <laughs> it's hard making yeah. movies. Uh, Doing yeah. anything the first time, you probably suck at it for most people. <laughs> uh, yeah. So to clarify, though, this ending of M. Night Shyamalan, <laughs> I, just, I just really want to get to right. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so therapist is in there. Bruce Willis is helping. And... Uh, uh, as he is working through the the trauma of this boy, he he you also learn more about how he feels he failed and he's got his own little bit of trauma because he wasn't able to help this kid that that shot him and that he said or attempted to help and but it in in reality put him into a worse state where he shot his therapist type of thing and as you go through working through that obviously the I see dead people part. And then you find out at the very end is that when the boy that he failed, Bruce Willis failed to help shoots him, he actually dies. Paramedics get there. It doesn't work out. And in that same time frame, the boy shoots himself and you're now in the present with the, what's his name? What's the act? The, uh, Haley Joel Osment. Haley Joel Osment. You're now in the present with Haley Joel Osment and Bruce Willis saying, that happened, you know, six, whatever, however many months ago it was. And yet I'm still here and I passed away. Like, wait, what? I'm one of the dead people. This, yeah. this child is seeing. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Fantastic. Like what that twist. I don't know. It blew my mind. I loved it. It was so good to me. Yeah, I think. I think because we're so enveloped in the story or invested yeah i'm going with invested because we're so invested with the story with these characters we hit that ending and it really throws you because you want them you want everything to be working Mm -hmm. out okay you want a happy ending for bruce willis i mean we always want a happy ending (laughs) for bruce willis i think um maybe not i don't i don't know that's besides the point you want a happy ending for Haley joel osmond and then you get there to the end and 
yeah, Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. and But he helped um, Haley Joel Osment's character get to a point where he's able to, like, process his trauma, where he's able to, like, handle things and where he's okay with who he is or, like, what's happened to him. And then once his character reaches that point, then he's able to help Bruce Willis, like, recognize what happened and what's going on with with him and with his life that he's living and I think that's really cool like just by focusing so much on that relationship we really get drawn into it and then the ending it's still a twist but it doesn't come like it doesn't feel cheap I guess is what I want to say like it it hurts (laughs) but it also feels good (laughs) like it's a natural transition it it makes you sympathize because normally ghosts and ghouls like they're these baddies you know they're not something that you want in your life but one of the characters that you now have been rooting for is a ghost and it's like oh wait no that's okay but let's have him have his moment and be you know taken care of and work through it and kind of accept his death situation i don't know yeah yeah no i think i think i think it's good six cents i'm a fan of that one that's a good movie. Um, yeah, so as we're nearing the hour 45-minute mark, dear listener, <laughs> um, we just wanted to say thank you for sticking with us this long, if you made it. Uh, shoot us an email, and we'll send you something, probably. <laughs> um, any any other final thoughts, you guys? No, thanks for joining us, Luke. Your insight was into it. It was very enjoyable. Yeah, my pleasure. This is very fun, like... I've been very okay with the length of the episode just because we've got to talk about all of these things like so in depth. Yeah. It was honestly a great learning experience. Like I said, I, I never really watched a lot of horror and I mean, we're here doing this two hour (laughs) podcast and there's still so much water. We never got to explore. There's entire genres we didn't even mention, but that's it. That's building up for the sequel, you know, we're leaving the door (laughs) open. (laughs) kind of like how they kind of like how they left the sequel open for dune 2 but we'll we should do another podcast (laughs) before dune 2 releases in october of 2023 (sighs) yeah yeah gotta plan long term everything's about cinematic universes now we're just trying to get in on that the history of knickknacks podcast (laughs) this is phase one Oh man. Well, uh yeah, again thanks for listening. If you managed to make it through this far, we appreciate you and everything you do. Um yeah, I, we couldn't do this without you. I mean, we can and we have been doing this without <laughs> you, listener, but we do appreciate you and what what you give. Um if you like what you heard, if you didn't like what you heard, send us to a friend, relative, literally anybody will take it. Um, and join us as we continue to build the uh, cinematic universe of the history of knickknacks. Thanks for listening this long, listeners. It's been a while, but... Hope you enjoyed it. Have a happy Halloween. Yes, happy Halloween. <laughs>